we're in the midst of a series right now looking at the essence of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this creed, the Apostles' Creed, is one of the earliest statements of faith from the church outside of the New Testament. The Apostles' Creed was an attempt to create a standard for what it meant to believe and follow God. I keep going back to the example, I've used it a few times over the last few weeks, of a ruler, because I think it can illuminate for us why this is important, right? A, a, a ruler standardizes measurement, whether it be an inch or a foot, regardless of who's using the ruler or what is being measured, right? The, the lengths in those situations will be the same. I guess maybe not if, you know, you measure the pew and you measure my finger, they're not going to be the same size, but you get the idea. There's a standardization of that. There's consistency. And I believe the Apostles' Creed does the same thing for our faith. It provides a standardization of what faith in Jesus Christ looks like. Now, that being said, the creed itself is not the entirety of our faith, but it gives us some basic principles that we affirm, and they provide a framework for our understanding of who God is and what, what he has done, how he has shown up in our lives. Last week, we left off uh, the, the, the end of the sermon was um, ending on the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ. This week, we look at his suffering and death. Now, traditionally, in the recitation, where when, when, when um, you know, kind of high churches, whether you were Catholic or Anglican or Presbyterian, and you may have recited this, um, typically, in the traditional form, those two statements of born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, are separated by a comma. Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan priest in the Catholic Church, called it the Great Comma, right? Because this, the, the creed seemingly glosses over the 30-plus years of Jesus' life and ministry. Everything Jesus taught, all the miracles that he worked, contained in this single piece of punctuation in the creed. Now, as I said a moment ago, the creed is not meant to be the entirety of our faith. Think of these statements as a fence, right, that provides a boundary for what it means to, to follow God, the truths of the nature of God. But the creed itself is supplemental to the New Testament scriptures. And at the time uh, uh, when the Apostles' Creed was written, the, the, the New Testament scriptures, both the Gospels and the Epistles, the, the letters, would have been widely circulated at this time. And, and, and so they were foundational uh, in, in that formation of the creed. So while this series per se specifically is not looking at the earthly ministry of Jesus in detail, that is where the foundation of the creed can be found. I think, I think it's important to say that because, like I said, we, we are kind of glossing over in, in our investigation this morning the 30 years uh, of when Jesus actually walked the earth. It, but even as a church, right, we didn't start with this. This wasn't the first sermon series. Uh, it was the third, you could argue, in a series. Last fall, we looked at the Gospels. We looked at the Gospel of Luke and really wanted to hone in on that ministry of Jesus. And then earlier this spring, we looked at the, the uh, book Acts of the Apostles, which traced the formation of the early church. The creed is not meant to be exhaustive, but it can help provide a boundary for our belief. And so this week, we're going to be adding to what we know of the creed. Uh, the statement that we're going to be looking at is, uh, He, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and, and was buried. And as our practice has been over the last few weeks, I would invite you to recite together where you, whether you are in this space with us this morning or at home watching, uh, reciting together. And the words will be on the screen. So friends, what do you believe? 
We believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Great. Thanks be to God for that. So we're going to take a moment to look at the, the, the four uh, expressions that are found in here that Jesus suffered under this, this Roman figure of Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, which, which describes his manner of death. We're going to spend just a moment to, to look at the fact that he was indeed dead and why that is important, and then just a moment about his burial. And then I'll close with a few take-homes for us. Now, th- this section of the creed um, is important for a number of reasons, but one of, the, one of the reasons that it's important is because this part of the creed is the most historically grounded than anything else that we will recite in it. Many of the other statements that we look at are very abstract, right? They talk about the nature of God, talk about him being a creator. That is a fact uh, that is historical, but it's still kind of abstract because we, we, none of us were there. Uh, in fact, that's God's claim against Job when Job is complaining against God. Were you there when I you know, laid the foundations of the earth? Right? We, we, later, we'll see about the, the formation of the church, believing in the, in the church, believing in the forgiveness of sins. We know that we're forgiven, but you can't really tangibly experience that. There, there's a degree of abstractness to that. C.S. Lewis described it this way, because here the creed is being tethered to history. He says the heart of Christianity is a myth which is also a fact. Many other religions have this mythology of a dying god. He gives the examples of the Norse god Balder or the Egyptian god of Osiris. But Lewis says that all of those figures died. Nobody knows when and where. To hear in the creed we have a historical person crucified under a historical person, Pontius Pilate. Lewis is stating that by including Jesus' suffering at the hands of Pontius Pilate, it authenticates the reality of the story. Right? This real person who was well-documented as a Roman official gives, this, gives extra authority to this myth that is, actually, that, that is also a fact. Again, and don't be, you know, when, I, when I talk about uh, Christianity, you know, Lewis talks about Christianity as a myth. He's not saying that it's not true. He is saying, he is affirming it is indeed factual. But it fits in this, this um, literary device that you have seen so often in the ancient world of you know, mythology, of dying God, things that seem supernatural and unbelievable. The difference is this myth is true, whereas many of those myths were not. Pontius Pilate is essential to the story. The main crowds who, who had a beef with Jesus were the religious leaders. Right? Jesus was constantly claiming divine authority. He was accepting the labels that people put on him as God's savior God's king. To to them, this was heresy. This was blasphemy of the highest order, deserving of death. But the Jews under Roman rule were not able to put anyone to death themselves. They needed Pontius Pilate, the arm of the Roman government, to sign off on the death penalty against Jesus. If you don't think that Jesus was political, let me frame his death for you this way. In the words of J.I. Packer, Jesus was put to death by the government as a threat to law and order. Right? The Roman government took it upon themselves to put Jesus to death because they thought that he was a threat 
to law and order. The death of Jesus was a highly politicized and political event. Pilate was right in the thick of that. There's this famous scene in the Gospels where he washes his hands of Jesus, thinking that he has absolved himself in this kangaroo court. But all he did was show that he, because he, he was the one who had the authority to put Jesus to death. Through his participation, he showed his passivity. Jesus is whipped and he's executed by the authority of Pilate, an authority that Jesus says Pilate only has because it was given to him by God. Jesus suffered. When we affirm the creed, we recognize his suffering. Even prior to his crucifixion, we think about the, 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 you know, how painful it would have been for him to have had his wrists nailed to that, to that cross. But even prior to his crucifixion, he was whipped 39 times. He w- and that whip was not pleasant. He used a, 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 they called it a cat of nine tails. It was this braided whip that was, within it was braided pieces of bone and glass that would rip the, the skin off your back. He was beaten by the Roman soldiers. He was spat upon. Crown of thorns was, thorns was jammed on his head. Right? The, the suffering culminated in his crucifixion, but it started well before that. His crucifixion is, uh, this whole process of his suffering up to the crucifixion is called the passion. Some of you may have seen Mel Gibson's film from, I don't know, about 15 years ago called The Passion of the Christ. Right? The word passion we think about uh, um, that week from, from uh, Holy Week, from uh, um, the Triumphal Entry. Palm Sunday, I was blanking on that. Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, describing us as passion. Passion comes from the Latin root word passus, which means to suffer or to undergo. And this is where, where grammar is one of those things that's important, because passion is when an object, and in this case Jesus, is affected, suffers under someone else's actions. Peter gives us, kind of fills in the black, the, fills in the blank for us in this. And he shares in Acts 2 that the active participants causing the suffering of Jesus is a combination of both God and man. Jesus is facing physical and mental pain that's inflicted by men, but he's also facing the divine wrath and rejection by God. I think it's important for us to see the combination of the two. Peter says this in in Acts 2, his sermon uh, on Pentecost. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? Like, this was God's plan for Jesus to suffer. And then Peter continues, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So what Peter is saying here is he is highlighting the two responsible parties in the suffering and death of Jesus. That God's plan all along, right, was to deliver Jesus to be killed, that, that, that God had a part to play in that process, but that this action was done by lawless men, right? the religious leaders, the, the Roman government. Uh, I, I've heard many call on God's participation. Right? This is something that historical orthodoxy teaches, that God had a part to play in this. And I think this is what the Bible teaches. Uh, this, this is what the Bible points to. And, and for example, this passage that we just saw. Many have have thought about God's participation in the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus, and they've called it cosmic child abuse. To many, it's this harsh perspective where the father forces his brutal will upon the son. But I think as hard and brutal as it might seem, it's important for us to reclaim the beauty behind what happened. 
Because God the Father was not a heartless, abusive parent who sold out his son. Together, before the foundation of the world at the beginning of time, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, together planned and implemented an avenue to reconcile and redeem a people who were wayward. And as we sang this morning, it's because of God's great love that he did it. Not out of anger, not out of jealousy, but out of love. This is clearest in the first epistle of John. John, the guy who also wrote the book of Revelation, wrote the gospel of John. In one of his letters he wrote in 1 John 4, 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And we like this verse. I hear it cited all the time. God is love. It feels kind of sentimental to us. And it's true because an essential characteristic of God is his overwhelming love. But if we continue to read after that, if we follow along in verses 9 and 10 say this, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's love sent his son. And then it continues in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I'll define that in just a moment. John says that God is love, but that God's love is demonstrated by his sending of the son into the world to be our propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is one of those theological words that you probably don't use in conversation each and every day. Propitiation is the act of appeasing or satisfying God. Particularly, it's used in satisfying his wrath. So Jesus being our propitiation for our sins, the scriptures, when it says that, it means that he is staving off, he is satisfying God's wrath that is the result of our sins. Now, in our modern age, we often don't like to consider the wrath of God. You know, I've heard people talk about that's an, that's an Old Testament thing. We see God's wrath in the Old Testament, but not, you know, in the New Testament, God is a God of love, as if those things are somehow diametrically opposed to one another. But I think in our modern age, we need to consider God's wrath. God's wrath continues in the New Testament, but it takes on a different form because it is absolved through the death of Jesus. I think we need to stop thinking about God purely in a sentimental way, right? When we talk about God being love in our culture, typically what we mean by that is we define love as he is gentle or he is kind. He is those things, but it does not necessarily omit his anger and his wrath. Right, we want to stop reading 1 John 4 after verse 8, which just says God is love. God is love, but he's also angry too. In fact, I would argue that his anger is a byproduct of his great love. This is really important for us to, to recognize, because if we are going to hold just to a, 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 you know, God's love, which is kind and gentle, then I think that's an anemic love. We want a God who's going to get angry. Because anger is a byproduct of love. Good anger, righteous anger, the kind of anger God feels, not necessarily the kind of anger I feel. There's all kinds of injustice in the world. 
the greater our love for something, the greater our anger is going to be when our, that object of our affection is hurt by an injustice. Right? Our anger that we feel is proportional to the love that we feel for an object. I like my car. My car gets me from point A to point B. If someone were to steal my car or to damage my car, I would be angry, right? We all would be angry. It's a costly possession to replace. But if someone hurt my child or my wife, my anger would rise far beyond the levels that I feel about an offense against my car. If, if, if I have my loves ordered appropriately, because my love for my family far outweighs how I feel about my possessions. I hope you can see where I'm trying to get with this. God has a deep and unwavering love for humanity. Apart from all the rest of creation, we are made in the image of God. We have the fingerprint, uh, the breath of God upon us in ways that the rest of creation does not. But it didn't take long for us as a people, as humanity, to dehumanize one another. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we murder, we treat our fellow human beings like objects instead of people. We focus inwardly, and we often don't care who gets hurt in the wake of our selfishness. Just, I just want to give you a couple examples of what this can look like in our lives to help us connect the dots. Most of you that are here or are, in, are, on, uh, are listening online have a smartphone. It's a, it's a pretty much uh, almost an assumption that most of us, not all of us, but most of us have some kind of smartphone. They're indispensable. They, they often feel like an extension of our bodies. One of the rare materials that you find in a cell phone is cobalt. Cobalt is a mineral that is essential for that lithium-ion battery, right? The, the thing, you know, if, uh, if your battery keeps dying real quickly, it allows, you know, the these smartphones are like supercomputers in our pockets that are tiny. If you just wanted to pop a couple double A's, they'd be burned out in, in, a, you know, in a day or two. But the ability for our phone to hold a charge and keep being recharged is that lithium ion, and cobalt is essential in it. According to Amnesty International, 50%, in fact, I just saw a recent statistic that suggests it's closer to 70% of the cobalt found in the world is found in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Approximately 40 thousand children work in the mines to get the precious cobalt that we all use in our smartphones in the developed world. Now, as you can imagine, the working conditions are deplorable for many of these children. Children as young as five are in these dark, dirty mines, mining this precious material so that we get smartphones and they get a couple measly pennies to try to help their families. I'm thinking about what's going on in China. And I know these are big, high-level examples, but I want us to see our, our participation in, in the brokenness of this world. Let's look at what's going on in China right now. You may have heard it on the news. Corporations that we love, you have Nike, you have Apple, you have Volkswagen. All, all of them have a number of their products that are made in China. And uh, a number of recent studies have investigated that many of those goods are coming from labor camps, i.e. slavery camps of the Ugar people. The Ugar people are a people from Turkish descent that have been oppressed by the Chinese government. And many of them have been, uh, approximately 80,000 of them have been sent to work in these factories, 
These Chinese factories where they've been stripped of freedoms to turn a profit for those Air Jordans that we covet. These are just two examples that barely scratch the surface of how deep this goes. You can probably think of some some, uh, personal examples in your life too. Where you've, you know, you, you got impatient with someone on the 376 and, you know, gave them the finger. Maybe you thought about it and you didn't actually do it, but, you know, Jesus says thinking about it's just as bad as doing it, right? Maybe there are places where you've been selfish and you have uh, chosen to, to hoard your resources instead of blessing others. The, the list could go on. I, I don't know that I want to say it's infinite, but it, it's, it's pretty long in there. I want us to see our participation in the brokenness of this world. In the book of Revelation, I was reading it uh, a couple weeks ago as I was rounding out my Bible in a year plan, and we see near the end, before the, the, the good news, I guess this is the start of the good news, we see God's wrath fall upon Babylon. Figurative city, those who are against God. And there are merchants who... They're living with selling their goods to Babylon and they're weeping because there's no one left to buy their goods. Listen to Revelation 18, 12 to 13 as it describes their goods. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood. This is where I would insert things like cobalt and Air Jordans here. All kinds of articles of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble. You got spices, cinnamon, Incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, right? They've got everything that you might want. But listen here. This is where it starts to get interesting. Cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is human souls. God pours out his wrath on those who dehumanize people for their own profit. There is so much in the world for God to be angry about because he loves us and he loves those who are affected by our sin, by the wrong decisions that we make. I'm trying to help us understand that we're complicit in this, that God's wrath is a byproduct of his love. That what I don't want us to do in our kind of secularized age, feel-good age, I don't want us to downplay God's wrath at sin. I don't want God to I don't want us to downplay God's wrath towards sinners like ourselves. God is rightfully angry. But instead, we should magnify and celebrate the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Right? We talk about his suffering, we talk about his propitiation because Jesus Christ absorbed and absolved the wrath of God that was slated for us. Jesus took on God's wrath, his punishment for our wrongdoing. Right? Jesus spared us, God's beloved, from having to pay a fine that was far too great that we could ever pay. God's wrath was fully poured out upon Jesus That's why you barely see God's wrath in the New Testament because it was poured out in Jesus. And if it was exhaustively spent on Jesus, how much is left for you and me? None. Jesus received God's wrath so that he could turn it away and that's something that is worth celebrating. Isaiah 53 was written some 700 years before the time of Jesus and it eloquently speaks about what Christ did. Isaiah 53, 4-6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions, right? Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth and is detailing the way in which he would die and why he would die. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we, we all are like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. When we talk about the suffering of Jesus, we recognize that he was whipped, that he was beaten, that he was berated, that he hung on a tree to die, not because he was guilty, but because we were guilty. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This right here is the reason the gospel is good news. We have redemption and a victory over sin in Jesus Christ. The creed contains all of that in just a few words describing Christ's suffering at the hands of Pilate and his crucifixion. Next, the creed tells us that Jesus died. So we're going to get to the resurrection in a few weeks. His death is important because if Jesus didn't actually die, then the resurrection is just a sham. I've shared this before, but there's a... a, semi-popular theory called the swoon theory that's put forth by skeptics. Uh, This belief is that, you know, because resurrection can't happen, people don't come back from the dead, and in an effort to get rid of the miraculous in in the scriptures, uh, they have to make it so that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. And so what they, they proclaim is that Jesus didn't die, but he just went unconscious. He passed out from shock and pain. And then afterwards, his unconscious body was placed in this cold tomb, and that cold tomb kind of, you know, kind of shocked him back awake. It's an interesting way to try to revise history, but I find it woefully inadequate. The Romans were experts at human torture and death. Jesus was one of thousands, perhaps ten thousands, of people who were crucified by the Roman government. In John 19, it records that since Jesus was being crucified on the day before the Sabbath, there was a desire to quicken the deaths of he and the others that were crucified with him, right? Because crucified killed you. It, was, it, was, it could be a very slow process. You died by asphyxiation. You could, you could kind of breathe, but you couldn't really ever catch your breath. In order to get a real deep breath, you would have to push up with your feet to try to open up that chest cavity to get that deep breath. And so if you wanted to, to expedite the dying process, the Romans would break your legs, so would you, you would lose that leverage, to ever catch your breath, and you would suffocate faster. Listen to what's recorded in John 19, 32 to 33. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other, the two thieves that were crucified next to Jesus. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Right, the Romans who were present knew without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was dead, and therefore his legs were spared from further harm. We affirm the death of Jesus knowing that it doesn't have the last word here and it doesn't have the last word in our lives as well. But we're going to get there. The last statement in our section this morning is that Jesus was buried. The deceased body of Jesus was taken off the cross and given to one of his followers, Joseph of Arimathea, a religious leader, one of the few religious leaders who did follow Jesus. It was placed in his tomb. And that I, I had initially prepared to share all about what the death process was like. There's this thing called an ossuary, a bone box, but I'm not going to get into it because we don't have the time and it's not worth it. But if you want to talk about that, the archaeology behind that, happy to, to share it. But the truth is, Jesus didn't need to go in a bone box because his body 
barely had a chance to decay before he was brought back to life in a perfected body. But that's not for today. That's our conversation in two weeks. Let's turn to application. I've got two take-homes for us today. And the first is what I call the low-hanging fruit. Um, Those of us that have been in church long enough have probably experienced this to some extent. Uh, It's the reality that Jesus suffered and died to stave off the wrath of God from us. Paul wrote this in one of his letters, Colossians 2, 13 to 15, says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And Paul continues, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God canceled our debt through Jesus and in the process gave us victory over any who would advocate against us. Do you feel God's victory in your life? Do you feel freedom from sin because of Jesus' suffering and death? I know from time to time I don't. I wasn't feeling victorious this morning, that's for sure, when I was struggling with anxiety, as I shared earlier. Sometimes we get bogged down in life, whether it's because we get in our own head because of our deficiencies. We see all the places that we screw up and it causes shame in us. Or we get saddled with the brokenness of the world thinking about those five-year-old kids in the cobalt mines and we turn to despair. Sometimes we go through a season of desolation where it can be hard for us to have hope. In those times, I think it's important for us to remember and affirm the suffering of Jesus for two crucial reasons. First, it's a reminder of God's overwhelming love for us, right? Remember that passage from 1 John. God is love and he demonstrated his love for us by sending Jesus to die so that all those screw-ups that we've committed would not be the thing that defines us. God's removed our sin from us so that we are perfected in his sight, right? He's not concerned about our past. He's dealt with our past in Jesus and looks forward to our future with him. But more than that, we should also not let the world get us down because Jesus not only dealt with our sins, but as Paul wrote in Colossians, he also dismantled the powers and authorities of darkness in this world. This doesn't mean that we are never going to suffer quite the contrary, but it means that when we do suffer, we know that our present trials don't have the final word. We have a victory in Jesus Christ that the world cannot take from us. And so I want to encourage us that when we feel beat down by the world, stand tall and proclaim your victory in Christ. Jesus suffered to free us from our past sins, to free us from the bondage of sin, and to free us from that darkness of the world that would bring us down. But I think that we would be remiss if we didn't use the suffering of Jesus to propel us into greater acts of love for our neighbors. This kind of piggybacks off of what we talked about last week in the incarnation about setting our our privilege aside in an effort to love others. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Andy Crouch, and I was reading a couple weeks ago a devotional by him, and he recently asked this question, and I want to pose it to us. How can I embody Christ's sacrificial power in my life? How can we embody what Christ did to sacrifice as an act of love in our lives as well? 
taking on sacrifice for, as an act of love. Remember that passage of 1 John, God's love is displayed through offering Jesus. But if we kept reading, I stopped at verse 10. If we kept reading in verse 11, it says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Right? Because God loved us, we are encouraged to love others. But the context of this passage isn't just love in a vacuum. The verse immediately before it is that God sent his son to suffer because of his love. Jesus suffered out of love for us. And I think that means that there are going to be times for us to love others well. We may need to embody Christ's sacrificial power. We might need to embody suffering in our lives. You could go a whole bunch of different directions with this. One place that I wanted to go this morning is I want us to think about suffering in our work. Whether you are a dishwasher, whether you are unemployed, retired, a stay-at-home parent, a manager, an engineer, a social worker in retail, whatever it is that you do, our work is one of the ways in which we create and cultivate culture. It's one of the ways we partner with God to do what he wants to do in this world. Again, work is not necessarily your job. It's not necessarily what you get paid for. But work is the calling that God has put, or can be the calling that God has put on your life. Andy Crouch says this about our work. Very often the church has taught its members that their main Christian responsibility at work is to act ethically. But what if we are not in the world just to maintain ethical systems, but to repair systems that have been corrupt or at least places where we need to beware? To think this way is to shift from individual choices to systemic responsibility. There's also a shift from thinking ethically to thinking redemptively. Redemptive thinking goes beyond honest individuals to the kinds of actions that actually could restore trust in whole systems. And then he gives the example. What if you could expect that your next visit to a used car lot to be as good for you as a visit to the doctor? I try to hold those things in tangent. You believe, hopefully, you go to a doctor trusting them, believing that they have your best interest at heart. Do you feel that way going to a used car salesman? Probably not, which shows that there is a need for redemptive work in that one area. There's a whole lot that could be said about this. Right? Work is just one place where we could see the potential to embody the sacrifice of Christ in our lives. How will you be redemptive in your work? Each position is going to look different. It might be doing the right thing when your boss wants you to compromise your morals. That's boarding on, on ethical behavior, but when everybody else is doing it, that seems like it could be ethical. What does it mean for you to buck the trend and be countercultural? If you're in healthcare, it could be finding a way to treat those who suffer and find workarounds to the current healthcare system, which admittedly don't work for everybody. Maybe you're an engineer who works to design a plant that is environmentally friendly instead of caustic. To it. Maybe you're going to be, you know, someone kind of in that frame of engineering that can find a new way to make batteries that last so that we're not, you know, focusing on kids. There, there's an example of a guy who was, uh, he was selling designer jeans in New York, you know, 100 bucks a pair, 150 bucks a pair, you know the kind. And he was using cheap labor, as many do, um, in, in the developing world. And just the, because it's cheap labor doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean it is unethical per se, right? Because the standards of living in different places. But 
it was only costing him $1 a pair to produce these jeans. So he was raking in a phenomenal profit on that. He comes to faith and he realizes that the working conditions are deplorable for the people in that, in that position. So what he's able to do, he is able to provide a little bit of a better wage. He's able to provide some semblance of health care, right? Improve the working condition. Only costed him like three or four dollars per pair instead of one dollar per pair. Eaten into his budget, but you know what? He did the somewhat, you could argue, redemptive thing to try to change the way that that good was being produced. Ate into his profit. He was still raking in probably more than he needed to. Those are just ways that we can begin thinking about that. Whatever we do, it's not anything that Jesus Christ has not done first by putting his life on the line and suffering. Let me wrap up here. The, the creed, as we saw this morning, affirms the suffering of Jesus. We know that his suffering was, was to accomplish and reconcile us to God. I'm a big Marvel movie fan. The first Avengers movie, you have Black Widow face-to-face -face with the film's antagonist, Loki. She says, I've got red in my ledger, and I'd like to wipe it out. Loki responds, can you? Can you wipe out that much red? And then he begins to list just a sampling of her indiscretions. We've all got red in our ledger, and Loki is right. We can't wipe it out. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that's given us this clean slate. And then God invites us to pay it forward, not to hoard that love, that redemption, but to pay it forward in the same way that Jesus suffered for us to bring us back to God. He invites us to sacrificially give of ourselves to others, to join with him in restoring this broken world and draw others into communion with him so they can have their debts wiped away as well. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your work in our lives. Thank you for inviting us to work on your benefit, to be part of the restoration process of this. May your Holy Spirit illuminate for us places where we can think not just ethically, but think redemptively of our work or our callings, whether it be what we get paid for or our, you know, being a parent, caregiver, volunteering in the community, whatever it might be. Help us to see the places where knowing that we have been redeemed, that we can begin to help along with you redeem these systems in our world. Lord, we lift this all up to you in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.